0: This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.
1: Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar
2: at michaeljfox.org. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Karen Giaffi, a member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council. I'm also a founder of In Motion, an amazing wellness center for people with Parkinson's disease located in Cleveland, and your moderator for today's very timely webinar. While we won't have time to discuss how world events are causing many of us to have mood changes, today we will be discussing how and why mood changes such as depression and anxiety happen in Parkinson's how you and your loved ones can talk about these symptoms with each other and with your providers and what treatment options are available. We do have a lot to discuss, so let's get started. First, let me introduce our panelists. Sebastian Chris is an 18 times Grammy Award winner and CEO of Rebellion Entertainment. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2019. So thanks for joining us, Sebastian.
3: It's good to be here.
2: Roseanne Dodkin is an associate professor of psychiatry at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School at Rutgers University. Welcome Dr. Dobkin.
0: Hello, very happy to be here as well.
2: And Irene Richard is a professor of neurology and psychiatry at University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. Hi, Dr. Richard. Hello, I'm happy to be here as well. So when a person experiences mood changes such as anxiety and depression, a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease would not be the first thing to come to mind. Yet for many, it is the mood changes that are the first signs of Parkinson's disease, sometimes beginning years before the classic motor symptoms such as tremor and rigidity. So, Sebastian, would you mind kicking off this conversation by sharing your story and what you were dealing with up to the point of getting diagnosed? Uh,
3: yeah, I, I was diagnosed in March of last year, and I had been experiencing depression and anxiety probably since about four or five years ago. Um, and one of the things that didn't make sense to me is I was working on a on really what was kind of my dream project. Uh, in twenty eighteen and was just you know depressed, anxious moody um and it's just it things didn't add up for me uh it just it it made no sense that I would be feeling that way while while really realizing you know this this wonderful project that I was working in and um you know i, I have a Gaucher's disease, so I knew that Parkinson's was a possibility and and I started just looking into it. Um, just because I, I saw the, you know, when I read up about it, I saw that depression and anxiety were part of the symptoms.
2: So you, so you think you had it for four or five years before you got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease?
3: I, I for the depression and anxiety for sure. Um, you know, and and again, it didn't. You know, I have I have a wife, two kids. I have, I I have a, you know, my job is basically what my hobby was when I was a kid. Um, you know, I I I don't on paper, there's no reason for me to be depressed uh, or anxious about anything. Um, so so that's, you know, that, that was a big red flag for me.
2: Dr. Dobkin, what percentage of people with Parkinson's develop anxiety and or depression? And does the incidence increase with the length of diagnosis? Those are really great questions. So statistics that you read will
0: vary based on the type of study that was done and the setting in which it was conducted. Um, but I would say it's completely um, accurate and probably a conservative estimate to say that uh, the majority, um, 50% or greater um, of people with Parkinson's will experience symptoms of depression or anxiety um, that impact their day to day. And then another percentage of individuals will experience maybe milder symptoms of depression and anxiety that maybe aren't there. You know, most of the time, but nonetheless will rear their ugly head from time to time um, and make life harder than it needs to be Um, with respect to depression and anxiety increasing um, over the course of the illness. I think the interesting thing to consider here is that depression and anxiety can impact people with Parkinson's um, really at, at any point. So we do see very high levels from. Pre diagnosis, um, as we just heard um, to early mid um, and late stage disease, and it is really dependent on really a mix of biological factors that are implicated um, in the onset and maintenance of depression and anxiety as well as an individual's coping response to the various challenges that they're facing day
2: in and day out. Well, how often do they present together, depression and anxiety?
0: They are highly comorbid, which is the fancy term for saying they present together um, at very high rates. So, again, I, I would like to say just from my own clinical experience, as well as from, you know, reviewing latest research studies, um, they are probably there together at least half of the time.
2: Dr. Richard, we had a listener
0: who's just
1: asked if apathy is a part of this picture. Um yeah so i mean that's a good question because apathy um so apathy meaning i guess really um uh, some people equate it with a lack of motivation but really just not not caring um and kind of being you know blah um but apathy is can either occur um in the setting in the context of depression as one of the symptoms but it's also can occur as as its own entity. So apathy, in and of itself, can occur in Parkinson's disease, outside of the context of depression or anxiety. Um, and so it uh, it's tricky. Apathy um, when people just aren't don't seem to have motivation to do things. Uh, the patients themselves tend not to complain of it because. By definition, they're apathetic. They really, you know, they don't really care. There's not a really, a, yeah. but the it's usually, to be honest with you, it's a, it's a care partner who, you know, he or she just doesn't really want to do anything, doesn't seem to get over the hump, and I just want to get them to do something. I think they'd feel better if they did. So, you know, in those cases, we try to delve a little bit deeper, and we try to find out, is there actually a negative mood. In other words, do you, when I say balance, kind of just um, direction. So, for example, when I ask the patient to themselves, you know, do you feel bad? In other words, do you feel like emotionally either down or distant or something negative? That's actually one of the key distinctions, I think, as opposed to, no, I'm fine. I just don't really feel like doing anything. Um, And there are ways to approach both. But what I would say is that it's because we do not have a specific treatment for apathy. I mean, there are certain behavioral modifications and some things being studied. Whereas, as we'll get to later, we do have specific treatments for depression. I think when apathy comes up, it's important to do a full screening for depression, just to make sure that that's not what you're dealing with, since that is something you
2: could treat. So let's look at, um, you know, just like Parkinson's symptoms, mood symptoms show up in different ways for different people. Dr. Dopkin, we can see that there's some crossover. Depression and anxiety can look alike. Let me ask you, as a clinician whose practice focuses on the mental health of people with Parkinson's disease, can you please elaborate on what it is about Parkinson's disease that brings on depression or anxiety above and beyond what we see with other serious conditions?
0: That's a great question. Um, And there are multiple factors that are involved in both sort of the onset and maintenance of depression and anxiety um, in Parkinson's, Um, you know, first and foremost, we know that there are a lot of biological and neurochemical changes. Um, that result from the disease process um, that characterizes Parkinson's. So we see changes in sort of the amount and the availability of the feel good chemicals called neurotransmitters um, that are available in the brain. We also see changes um, or traffic jams or interruptions um, across some of the highways um, that connect different areas of the brain um, as well as, You know, some decreased activity in certain brain regions that are related to mood. But in addition to those biological and neurochemical changes, There are also um, behavioral factors and cognitive factors that are implicated in mood. So what do I mean by that? So when I say behavioral factors, you know, what a person is doing or not doing um, in response to the various and very real challenges that they're experiencing, you know, day in and day out, you know, does an individual have kind of enough exposure to the people, places, and things that, provide them with a sense of satisfaction or reward um, or meaning or productivity um, in their day to day. You know Parkinson's can really change the landscape of the day, and we really have to think creatively, you know think outside of the box, sometimes build a better box to figure out um, you know how we really can expose ourselves to those life experiences that are going to enable us to feel good about ourselves. you know, so as an individual, um, exercising. Are they engaged in, you know, meaningful social connections? Do they have hobbies or leisure activities that enable them to feel good about themselves? So we really need to look kind of behaviorally um, at what an individual is doing, as well as consider, you know, how they're thinking about themselves and their world and their future. Um, you know, what Parkinson's may mean or not mean for them and their ability to, um, you know, to cope with the changes um, and difficulties that they're going to be experiencing um, from time to time. So really, depression and anxiety are are multifactorial. Um, The biology sets the stage, but how an individual reacts um, and copes with the changes and the challenges that Parkinson's presents um, also plays a really important role. So, you know, learning coping skills, to best manage stress and negative feelings, as well as becoming aware of, you know, how we're talking to ourselves. What are the messages um, that we are giving to ourselves? You know, are we speaking to ourselves with the same kind, gentle, you know, compassionate tone um, that we would speak to a dear friend, or are we being overly critical and harsh towards ourselves? Um, And oftentimes those self-critical messages play um, a very important role um, in maintaining these negative mood states.
2: So Sebastian, if you look at this laundry list, what were some of the things that you were experiencing, and has this list changed over time for you?
3: Um, I mean, the sleep problems are definitely an issue. Uh, irritability. Um, you know, I worry all the time. Just mood swings. Um, and and just feeling feeling really down. Um, and. I mean, I, I do. I for me, it really helps to exercise. Um, you know, I I just I don't take a day off. Uh, I, I exercise seven days a week, and and like this morning, you know, I did not want to, and it just I just force myself to do it. I I, I look at right. it as, as part of my treatment. Um, you know, just like just like the medicine I have to take every day. I that's part of the medicine. Um,
2: were you an exerciser before you had parkinsons
3: I, I was but but you know it, it had a different meaning to me uh now i just again i just look at it as as medicine i just i have to be regimented about it um uh, i don't give myself the option um so so that's that's a big part of it i i think i think one of one of the things is for me is to be able to you know and i'm i'm also i'm also taking medicine for the depression and you know i go to therapy so I, I i really i feel like i i have to attack this from all sides um and and to really you know talk about it with my family and and for people to understand that this you know that this is a real a real aspect of it, and and to be honest with you, when I got diagnosed, it was kind of a relief to understand that okay, my depression is coming from this disease and not something else. Um, you know, to have that question answered was was really was really a, a weight off of my shoulders, and I was able to to look at it in a different way.
2: That's an important thing to remember as we go through as we go through this and talk about this because a lot of people. Um, you know, for some people talking about what, what's going on is easier said than done. And it's all, but as hard as it is to do it, it's so important that we do talk about mood changes that we're experiencing, because this is not about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, depression and anxiety are medical conditions, just like diabetes or heart disease. But unlike diabetes and heart disease, the stigma that still hangs over a mental health diagnosis does have the ability to keep some people from asking for help. Um, Dr. Richard, do you find that most Parkinson's clients will address these issues of depression and anxiety directly with you, or is it more likely that a care partner will be the one to initiate the conversation? I mean, that's very, I mean, everything you just said uh, is all very
1: important and very relevant. Um, So if I will first just to kind of um, agree with you that I think it's so important for people to understand that depression, regardless of whether you have Parkinson's disease or not, you know depression is a is an illness just as any other illness is and i think that you know just as diabetes is just as and in this case depression is a an actual symptom of parkinson's disease that can occur years before that can occur you know at the onset that can occur during and you know just like tremor just like anything else so And I think that there is a misconception about that actually really among just, just, there's a, there's a widely held misconception about depression that in some way, you know, it's the same as sadness or, or that someone actually has the ability to, like you just said, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And sometimes if I ask people, you know, well, if I, if I and start the inquiry and say, are you depressed? Oh, no, I'm a very positive thinker. You know what I mean? I just, you know, in other words, as if there can, which is a good thing to be a positive thinker, mind you, (laughs) as Dr. Dobkin will talk, there's a way, you know, that is an important factor. But whereas the, but the, the converse of that is that if somebody does have depression, they feel as though somehow, you know, they're letting it get to them and they're not taking a positive enough attitude and somehow they caused this. And I think it's just so important to understand that while you can work on changing your, you know, the ways in which, we, you know, like cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, the ways in which you think about things, it's really important first to just understand that, there I have patients who are far more affected physically and far more disabled who are not depressed than patients who have almost no symptoms or, you know, in some cases haven't even developed physical symptoms yet and have depression. So it it is definitely something of that people do not um it is not a uh, a reflection of one's um certainly not one's moral character, but normal one's desire to, you know, combat something or not. So that was the first thing i just because I think that's so important. And I do think there still is a stigma. And I think fortunately, although it's like many other things in our society, is slow to change in the positive direction, I think it is. What I would say is that it is, it really depends upon the the individual and their partner. Um, I think sometimes the individual will bring it up Sometimes the partner will, sometimes neither will. Um, very often, the uh, particularly when uh, the clinician in a neurology practice anyway. Um, and I guess we should specify that Dr. Dobson is a psychologist and I'm a neurologist, which you know we both do research, but just slightly different in the sense that you know maybe what the focus of what we do is. And I don't know about the time given. Um, I know that certain uh, in our case, you know, we're being asked to do more and more in less and less time. And so, you know, yeah. people sometimes will skip over that. And I think that I would say that in general, depression is under-recognized and, in, and because of that, it's undertreated. And I think that it is important, as you say, for the patients and their loved ones to bring it up if their clinician does not bring it up. And just as when I talk to clinicians, I say it's very important part of a screening question to ask about any are there symptoms of depression or anxiety um, because they can be treated and because they can impact, they have a huge impact on everything else. So, yeah, again, it, it really varies, but the more we can educate people and the more that we can get people to, um, kind of try to forget that stigma, try to understand that it's an actual symptom, and then to try to feel free to talk about it. The the more we can do that, the better.
2: Yeah, and it's it's too bad that Parkinson's itself has a stigma, so we've got a double whammy here. Um, yeah, Sebastian, yeah, Sebastian, I'm curious as how your relationship with your spouse and your children are. Are they? Do they kind of sort of when you're having a bad day? Do they just say, oh, this is Parkinson's, or they say, oh, you know, do, they, do you do you, do you mind them bringing it up, or do you mind them having to talk, asking you to talk about it at all, or what, how you're feeling, or would you rather, meaning, would you rather be left to your own devices to try to fix it, or do, is is it helpful to have your care partner and your family participate in in this part of your Parkinson's disease? I
3: I actually just I kind of let my spouse know, you know, I'm I'm feeling down today. Um, that's, you know, just, just to let them understand that, you know, there's not, there's not anything particular that they have to, you know, worry about or be concerned about. Just know that, you know, I'm having an off day. Um, uh, it, it just helps me to not be able, you know, not have to, uh, have them feel like you know, they need to treat me any differently or or whatnot. Right. You know, it's it's more it's, it's more just like, hey, point. you know, today's yeah, today's an off day. Um, You know, no particular reason. Um right. You know, I also I also found that that there are things that that trigger the depression that are very uh, trivial. Um, and, and I kind of walk it back and, and try to figure out why I'm having a bad day. If it's, if it, if it was something specific that triggered it, um, and, you know, it can be like the, the smallest thing can just, you know, make me just go down a rabbit hole. Uh, and once I, I'm able to trace it back, it helps me just sort of get out of it. Um, you know, but, but it's, but I, I do, I do talk to you know, talk to them about it and I do talk to, you know, even my clients about it. Um, You know, I work in music. So, so what the mood is while, while you're making music is important, Um, you know, and, and I bring it up. I mean, it's just, it's just part of it. I think, I think that bringing it up helps everybody understand everything uh, differently. Um, you know, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable for people in the beginning, I just, I think it, for, for me, I can't speak for anybody else. but for me, it just helps me have things, you know, out in the open.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, um, Dr. Dobkin, we have, we have a question coming from the audience. They want to know, as a husband and caretaker, how should we help with mood swings? And how, how would you suggest right. that the care partner participate in this whole issue of anxiety, depression, mood dis- dis- disorders?
1: I feel like this might be, and I apologize for changing the order, but I think I wanted to mention something that I think might set the stage and also is an important distinction. I even, you know, prior to uh, Dr. Dobkin answering that question, just to say that when we talk about swings, so you know, there are there's depressive disorders and anxiety disorders, meaning. You can have, um, you know, depression that is present, you know, maybe every day for a period of time. It might be mild. It might be more severe. Um, and You may have some days that are better than others or some parts of some days that are better than others. Same thing with anxiety. But in those things, we consider it more of a disorder. I think the one important thing that I just want to point out is that there's another phenomenon that is unique to people who have slightly more advanced disease and who are taking medications. Generally, they're taking carbidopa, levodopa or Sinemet, and they have what we refer to as fluctuations. We usually think of those as motor fluctuations, meaning in the beginning, they're. Levodopa works nice and evenly and kind of mimics how our brain would normally release it, so things are nice and steady with, with regard to our motor functioning anyway. Over time, however, because there are fewer dopamine neurons and because of changes that happen, you start to get swings in the levels of dopamine, and people's motor function, therefore, starts to dramatically change throughout the day. And it may start off as just, let's say you wear off, meaning your symptoms of Parkinson's disease, as tremor, or whatever, start to reemerge before you're ready for your next dose. The other component of that is that at, in the beginning, you may not get, you know, the amount of cinnamon that you take works just right, you feel fine. But over time, you become more susceptible to getting extra movements, and we call those dyskinesias. Over time, these can be so dramatic that patients can be rendered immobile, literally, within five minutes to being looking normal or to looking normal but having extra movements. What's important to realize is that there are also non-motor fluctuations, which not always but often parallel the motor fluctuations, but are not a response to them. So, for example, anxiety and decreased mood are very common when people's medicine is wearing off, so during off periods. And studies have been done that show it's not just that you are anxious or depressed because your symptoms reemerged, because the symptoms of anxiety and depression actually start about five to 10 minutes before the motor symptoms do. So, in this case, it really is mood swings, but in particular, we refer to them as fluctuations. And the reason why that's important is, if that's what's going on, you you first want to, first of all, identify it as such, And you want to first try to level out the dopamine and fix those motor fluctuations to see if that will also fix the mood and anxiety fluctuations, and both can exist. So I just thought that that was important because I know know, there are certainly swings and good days and bad days and provocations even within a more chronic kind of anxiety and depressive disorder. But Parkinson's disease is probably the only disease in which there is this other unique phenomena Called motor and mood fluctuations um associated
2: with advancing disease and medications, so i I would like to just kind of sort of jump in there and say, probably the best way to manage this is to just have a discussion with the neurologist when is it when is it happening in what context is it and, happening?
1: and that's exactly what happens. So you know I am a neurologist, and when my patient tells me, you know when when
2: you know oftentimes a
1: resident will see the patient first, and you know they'll say Well, you know, they're anxious and, you know, I say, and I'll say to them, well, what time of the day does that happen? And how, what, how does that happen in relation to the timing of their cinnamon dosage? And I have them map it out in a diary. And sometimes it's as simple as changing their dopamine, uh, you know, their medication regimen. And we can smooth that out or we can at least get rid of that component and then see if there is still an underlying
2: more chronic, Anxiety or depressive disorder. Um, so, Dr. Dobkin, I'm going to hang um, hang that one up for right now. I'd like to move into this next slide because there's a lot on here that I want us all to talk about. This slide outlines the, the many therapeutic interventions, both pharmacologic as well as non-pharmacologic. So, Dr. Richard, I'm getting a lot of questions in the queue regarding medications, so let me start with you. What are the best medications for anxiety depression with Parkinson's disease, and which antidepressants ease, ease depression Without worsening movement symptoms? Right, great question. Um, and so, this is basically
1: the one thing about so, although depression and anxiety are frequently, you know, coexistent, depression and the treatment for depression has been better studied. Anxiety is about maybe 10 years behind. What I will say about depression is that we know um, based on um, this sad PD study is one of them that you know um, was done um, a number of years ago, published in 2012, which showed that frequently used antidepressants, the serotonergic specific ones, so we call them SSRIs, as well as ones that we call that are affect both serotonin and norepinephrine, so SNRIs. What we looked at was, we happened to pick Paxil or Paroxetine as our SSRI and Effexor or Venlafaxine as the SNRI. And it was proven that each of those medications was more effective than placebo on every single measure of depressions, self-rated, objective rated, every single measure. So it was actually a pretty clear cut study and that was despite a very high placebo response. That's kind of a technicality, but suffice it to say, SSRIs, so again, medications like in this case, the only one we can say for sure is paroxetine because, and there may be some conflicting results, but just because that was chosen, but in all likelihood, I think one could surmise that other medications of that class might also be effective, and it's reasonable to look at the side effect profile. So other medications would include, for example, you know, Sertraline, which is Zoloft or um, Fluoxetine, which is Prozac, Um, um, Selexa, although one must be careful in people over the age of 60 with regard to any higher dosage because of some potential cardiac effects. But anyway, all of those. So what's used in the general population who doesn't have Parkinson's disease. And then the SNRIs, I would say the one to use would be venlafaxine or Effexor. Um, And what I would say is that in general, most people will start with one or the other. So I tend to start myself with, I would tend to start with, with an SSRI like Paxil. And then if despite optimizing the dosage of that, it doesn't work, I will then move to an SNRI, which would be venlafaxine or Effexor. Now, there are older medications, though called the tricyclic antidepressants, such as nortriptyline, which is definitely effective, but because it's associated with um, um, uh, really uh, less tolerability, a little bit more in the way of side effects, as well as a higher potential to cause some heart arrhythmias, that's generally not first or second-line treatment. The uh, other possibility would be something like bupropion or Welbutrin. Having said that, it has not been specifically studied for depression and Parkinson's disease. So we don't really know about it. Having said that, we do try it. Um, as the the last thing I'd say would be pramipexol, which actually is a medication called the dopamine agonist, which is part of the, um, cash or Arsenal, I guess if you want to call it part of the choices of medications used to treat motor symptoms. Now. It just so happens that that does have some antidepressant effect. Probably not as much, but if you have somebody and you want to try to get a 2 for 1, let's say, um, or let's say they are they or somebody who has these fluctuations. You could consider consider uh, pramipexole or Mirapax again, be aware that there are specific side effects associated with that. Anxiety on the other hand, while you will often hear that the SSRIs and SNRIs are effective for anxiety as well, well, that's true in the non-Parkinson's population. Again, not for everybody, by the way, but two-thirds of people generally respond. There are about a third of people who may not respond to the first or second trial. But as it turns out, nobody has studied that. And it just so happens that in that p d study I referred to, the, while all of the depression measures improved, the anxiety measures did not. Now, I must preface this by saying that those were individuals who did not have significant anxiety. So for example, they were chosen because they had depression without a separate anxiety disorder. So, but nonetheless, they didn't improve. So we recently looked at a medication that is widely prescribed by psychiatrists and primary care doctors um, in the general population called Buspirone or Buspar, which is an anti-anxiety medication. We did a small pilot study that was funded by the Michael J. Fox Foundation because we thought, you know, this has the potential to help anxiety, possibly even help dyskinesias, but could worsen motor function. And um, we've not yet published it, although we had our abstract accepted. And what I would say about that was very interesting that it turns out that um, it really, it was not as well tolerated as we had hoped. And that it um, in fact did cause some worsening of motor function at relatively low dosages for more people than we would have expected, which was totally reversible as soon as they stopped it but other people were able to tolerate it. And it, for, And interestingly, the people who finished the study on it, there was a signal showing that it did help the anxiety. The other caveat to this is that there were, it was, I thought it was very interesting that 85% of the people who enrolled in our study were already on one of those SSRIs or SNRIs, which has two implications. One of them is maybe bucephrone would have been better tolerated if they weren't on that. But the other implication I thought was, wow, here's all these people who are on the medications that everybody think helps anxiety and Parkinson's, and yet they're still qualifying for our anxiety study. So, I don't think we know what's a good medication to treat anxiety and Parkinson's disease yet. Commonly prescribed are medications called benzodiazepines. Those are things like Xanax and Valium and everything. And for sure, they do help anxiety, but they're, they have their own issues, um, you know, obviously, particularly as people get older, but, you know, you can develop a tolerance to them where you have to increase dosages. They can affect balance, um, they can affect, you know, thinking. So while good in the short term, um, or perhaps, you know, for other reasons, not really the best answer. Having said all of that, do I still try an SSRI or an SNRI? Yes, I do, actually. And I start low because sometimes anxiety gets worse before it gets better. And I sometimes add a small benzodiazepine dose while I'm starting it. But by this point, I've usually referred somebody to a psychiatrist. Enjoying this podcast? Share it with a friend or rate and review it on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. MichaelJFox.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to the podcast.
2: Uh, so, Dr. Dobkin, I'm going to turn to you now. We've got a whole long list there of under prescription medications of things that patients can try. Uh, to improve their mood, their mood dysfunction. Um, what work, What do you find works well?
0: I think that um, you know it's really important to emphasize that in addition um, to all of the prescription medications um, that Dr. Richard so nicely just reviewed, there are a lot of non-medication approaches um, that people can also use either in self-help format, or ideally um, in collaboration with a licensed clinical psychologist or social worker to help them to boost their mood. So I practice, and I have also extensively studied um, a type of psychotherapy called cognitive behavioral therapy um, for the treatment of depression and anxiety and Parkinson's disease. And I know that sounds like a mouthful, so I want to try to break it down a little bit so that people can walk away from this presentation with a nice understanding of some things they can start to implement um, in their lives, you know, from one o'clock today onward, and uh, to help them cope, you know, as effectively as possible with, with mood changes and mood swings. So when we say cognitive behavioral therapy, what we're really talking about is really drilling down on. Our thought process um, as well as what we're doing and not doing um, in, in response to the challenges that we're facing. So, when I work with individuals, I always like to first examine what is the behavioral repertoire of the day. Um, and a lot of times my clients will tease me and they're like, oh, Dr. Dopkin, um, you know, you're, you're so mean, because I always say, okay, I've got three basic rules of engagement here. Uh, if we're going to focus on three things to help to enhance your mood, these are my basic requirements. Um, I think it's incredibly important um, for people to exercise every day. Um, it doesn't have to be running a marathon or doing anything that is unsafe or overly strenuous, but you know, a slow walk around the block, yoga, seated exercises, um, a Parkinson's dance class or a boxing class, whatever you can safely do. Um, every day, I like to see some type of physical exercise as part of the schedule. Um, every day, I also like to see some type of social connection With other individuals who you actually like interacting with um, as part of the daily repertoire as well. Um, And when I say social connection, I don't mean you know making plans you know to go to the opera or hosting a dinner party for the entire neighborhood it can be the small changes that we make day in and day out that can be incredibly powerful and incredibly meaningful so answering the phone when it rings rather than letting it go to voicemail you know or responding to um, your emails and your text messages the day they come in rather than a week later or possibly never so trying to find small but reasonable ways to connect and to stay in touch with the people that are important to you. Um, and then also setting a goal every day around an area I touched briefly upon earlier, you know, activities that are associated with meaning and reward and pleasure and, and satisfaction. Um, you know, is there a certain type of music that you like to listen to and can you set aside 20 minutes a day, um, you know, to listen to that type of music or a certain book that you might enjoy reading or, or listen to in an audiobook format? Uh, Can you find pleasure in, you know, mindfully sipping, you know, your morning cup of coffee or tea, you know, outside in your garden um, each day? You know, so I suggest to people every day from a behavioral perspective, can we have an exercise goal? Can we have a social goal and can we make sure there's something else we're working towards that's going to enable us to feel good to find or derive meaning from the day or to experience a sense of pleasure? Oftentimes, people can also benefit from learning meditation techniques or relaxation skills. So techniques such as um, deep breathing or visualization or learning different types of muscle relaxation exercises that maybe they can practice ideally, um, you know, 10 or 15 minutes at a time twice a day um, can be incredibly helpful. Um, So, behaviorally, those would be the top, I guess, four things I would recommend regarding mood. Exercise, social connection, Proactively scheduling your involvement each day in meaningful and pleasurable activities, just like you would schedule your doctor's appointments. Um, And then also maybe experimenting with some breathing, some muscle relaxation, some meditation techniques. So that's the behavioral piece. Um, And then there's the cognitive piece. It's so important for people to be aware, as I mentioned earlier, of that internal dialogue. What are they saying to themselves? How are they interpreting um, what's happening in their world day in and day out? It may be Parkinson's related or related to some other aspect of their life, but what's the meaning? Um, What's the interpretation? And how can we maybe press pause on some of those really negative things that we may think or say to ourselves, and then maybe examine that thought or that statement a little bit more closely, um, and then rewind it and replay it in a healthier, more balanced direction. And I wanna just quickly share an example of this cognitive reframing um, that I just described that I hope will really um, drive the message home. So I, I share this example with permission um, from a client of mine, Bill, who I worked with probably 15 years ago um, at this point point. Um, and Bill had um, later stage. Parkinson's and we were working together. He was experiencing, you know, a lot of um, mood and motor fluctuations like um, Dr. Richard had spoke about earlier um, as, as well as a lot of freezing. So Bill came into my office one morning and he was looking very depressed and very demoralized. And we were talking about, you know, what triggered that low mood that he was experiencing. And he said, well, you know, Dr. Dopkin, Last night, you know, per usual, you know I got up at three o'clock in the morning and you know, I went into you know, the bathroom, as I always do every night, um, and I was washing my hands and about ready you know, to, to go back to the bedroom, and I was frozen. Um, I couldn't move my feet, and I recognized in that moment um, how helpless I was. And so he was labeling himself as helpless for being frozen in the bathroom in the the middle of the night. And we spent an hour talking about this and breaking it down. Um, And what Bill revealed to me in the context of that conversation was that he actually took many, many steps to get himself out of that situation, even though he he physically could not move his feet. Um, So he was aware that the freezing was a really big problem for him, and this again is going back 15 years before we were all you know so addicted to our cell phones and our technology, um, you know, in the way that we are today. Uh, but he was forward so thinking, he had his cell phone with him, so even though he physically couldn't move his feet, he had his phone and he called his wife on the house phone, woke her up. Um, and asked her to come into the bathroom and to help him back to bed. And when she got up and went into the bathroom, she helped him to practice his PT techniques to break the freeze and he was able to move. So, As we talk through the situation, Bill was able to recognize that even though he was physically unable to move his feet in that situation, he was anything but helpless. So that's an example of the type of reframing that can be critically important and empowering um, for for people to, to utilize in, in order to enhance their mood. You know, all of these thoughts constantly are, are, are flooding through our minds. We don't have to accept them as the absolute truth just because they are there. Um, it can oftentimes be very important to take a step back and ask ourselves, huh, might there be another way to think about this situation? Am I considering all of the pieces of evidence, all of the facts that are involved in this situation? And if I widen the lens, and think about it more deeply or think about it from an alternative perspective, maybe I can change or revise or reframe my thought, and if I change my thought, maybe that will also help to enhance my mood. So, in terms of non-pharmacological approaches, again, just to review, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy really incorporates um, a lot of these behavior changes and behavior modifications, like I just mentioned, you know, exercise, social connection, meditation and relaxation, pleasant activity scheduling, writing out a daily schedule, having some structure and routine, and really looking more closely at our thoughts and not accepting all of those negative detrimental thoughts um, at face value without trying to think about them a little bit more closely um, and reframe them as possible. And this is a type of non-pharmacological treatment that I've actually studied um, a fair amount with respect to its impact on mental health in people with Parkinson's disease. Um, To date, I've done three large randomized studies where we've looked at the impact of this type of non-pharmacological treatment compared to just treatment as usual um, in the Parkinson's community, you know, whatever was being um, prescribed by the, the personal healthcare team um, for the treatment of depression and anxiety. And we look to see how do people who receive cognitive behavioral therapy, how do they do um, in the short term and in the long run um, when they receive the CBT plus treatment as usual compared to those who just receive um, treatment as usual without the skill based psychotherapeutic approach. Um, And what we found is that when people learn how to make behavior changes, learn how to respond differently to negative mood, learn how to talk back to their negative thoughts, we see really sharp reductions in depression and anxiety, as well as improvements in quality of life um, and physical functioning. Um, and those effects tend to last even after the therapy stops.
2: So I, I, I think that in Parkinson's, there's, you know, some, when people get diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, they're often just told to, you know, take your medication and come back. And I think that it's a very isolating disease for a lot of people. as a physician getting diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, at a young age, um, you know, it became very clear to me pretty quickly that, that the services that people uh, need for Parkinson's disease haven't really been developed, you know, across the board like they have for cancer patients where there's a team of people waiting in to take a cancer diagnosis patient right along the way and, and stay with them. And, and in Parkinson's, I don't believe that we've developed that yet. But as a physician, I, I recognized that that was missing. And so we've I, as I mentioned earlier in my introduction, I'm a founder of in motion, which is a wellness center for Parkinson's patients that has, you know, a lot of things under one roof and, and not only is there physical activity there, but there's support groups and, and that are run by licensed social workers. And there's art therapy and music therapy and, and singing and exercise. And it's amazing how many people as a physician, you know, I had a lot of people, you know, say, thank you. You helped save my life. But when I walk into Motion, it's a, it's a, it's a constant, you know, thank you, thank you, because people have been isolated for so long, and they've had anxiety and depression that they didn't, that they couldn't get on top of. But just having the the, the the social interactions with with other people with Parkinson's who understand what they're going through, I think, has also been a big help in in helping our clients deal with the anxiety and depression. And it also helps, I might add, to be honest with you, from a you know, in treating Parkinson's disease, to have a
1: multidisciplinary care team, even if I mean, under one roof would be fantastic and even if you can't though that utilization of all of those resources including including allied health professionals like meaning otpt um you know uh the speech and swallowing as well as social workers and therapists but to have all those people communicating with each other um as well as with the primary care doctor i think is incredibly important because some things that you know, if one person does something and another doesn't know it can impact and and so, for example, you know. I guess just to add that, that, that the concept of. Multidisciplinary care um, for all those reasons, I think is really important. Um, and just before I forget 1 other thing that I wanted to say, because I, I know that 1 of the questions was asked and which antidepressants. Um, don't worsen the Parkinson motor symptoms, and I did want to say that uh it's it what i what I've been seeing is that a lot of primary care doctors and psychiatrists are using what we typically call antipsychotics albeit atypical antipsychotics um for the treatment of anxiety and depression and for help with sleep, and they do help actually. And these would be medications such as aripiprazole or Abilify, for example, things like that. Now, I have a biased perspective because obviously I see people who come in with Parkinsonian symptoms, but I can tell you that those medications cause Parkinsonism Mm -hmm. and they cause Parkinsonism in people who they cause Parkinsonism in some people who don't have Parkinson's disease, they will likely worsen parkinsonian motor function in anybody who does have Parkinson's disease. And very interestingly, um, as our our guest, uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on your name, but our 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 um, CEO uh, Grammy Wimmer, uh, <laughs> Sebastian, um, um, this Sebastian, sorry, sorry, um, uh, had had uh, mentioned that he developed anxiety and depression prior to the onset. That's not uncommon. And one thing we saw is that patients without any motor symptoms, developed depression or anxiety, were given a medication such as Abilify, developed Parkinsonism, and in, we ended up doing advanced studies like that scans. And in some of the cases, actually, these patients did indeed have Parkinson's disease, that likely came out earlier than it might have being precipitated by these medications. Some people ended up not having Parkinson's disease, but had what we would call drug-induced Parkinsonism caused by these medications. So I do think it's very important because I do see this a lot, where patients were being treated for anxiety and depression with what we call, quote, atypical antipsychotics, not for psychosis, and it definitely worsens Parkinson's. So just to put that
2: out there. Sebastian, did you have any problems trying to find a medication that was effective for, for your anxiety and depression? Have you had to bounce around uh, from medications? or?
3: Yeah, no, I, I did because I'm, you know, I work in, in music and when I first, before I knew I had Parkinson's, I started taking medication and it really, it it made me just feel nothing and, and that's very bad for you know, if you're trying to make music, if you're just, you know, I, w- I felt fine, but everything was fine, and it was it it just creatively it kind of stunted me, so I went off the medication. And what what I found that worked for me was actually the mirror effects. Um mm. You know, it didn't it didn't actually work for me um, with the motor part of it, but it worked for mm-hmm. me uh, as far as the depression goes and the and the anxiety. Um, so that's that's what I've been taking because it's it's a fine line for me to be able to do my job. Uh, I kind of have to be able to to really access emotionally, uh, be, be emotionally available for the work that I do, um, and not have anything muted. Um, and the Mirapex was the one thing that that I found kind of did that for me. Um so yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't right away that I was able to to find something that worked. And,
2: and I think it's as a physician, we, we know that all, not all medication is gonna work for every every person. So there there has to be some uh patience in terms of waiting to see whether something is gonna have an effect or not. But if it's not working, then it's probably time to talk to your physician and see whether they can make an improvement on what that drug regimen is. I'm gonna to move to the last yeah, slide definitely. here, which is talk about research. Um and I'd like uh maybe Dr. Uh, Dopkin can start by talking some about some of the research that she's done, I think in terms of using technology to deliver care, especially in this day and age when people can't leave their houses very easily um what are we doing to uh, improve on um, parkinson's care in that in that genre?
0: really important topic, and you know I, I mentioned a few moments ago that I've done um, three randomized control studies looking at um, the effects of cognitive behavioral therapy for the treatment of depression um, in Parkinson's disease. The 1st of those studies was you know, traditional brick and mortar um, come into the clinic in order to participate um, in this research program um, the last 2 studies that were recently completed in the past year. Involved administering the cognitive behavioral therapy on a telemedicine platform. Um, So, in one of the studies um, that was generously funded by the Fox foundation, we administered um, the CBT treatment by telephone um, directly into people's homes. And in the second study, um, we administered the treatment via web based video conferencing. So, Both studies use the telemedicine platform um, to bring treatment directly to people's homes to really bypass access barriers to care. Um, And in both of those studies, I think the really exciting um, and promising result is that not only was the treatment helpful, Administered remotely, but the magnitude of improvement was identical, like almost down to the 100th decimal point place in terms of the benefit that we saw with respect to reduction in depression and anxiety. So nothing was lost in terms of effectiveness when we administered the psychotherapy um, via phone or via web-based live video conferencing, but so much was gained because we could cast a much wider net and we could offer treatment to individuals who otherwise would have been unable to access it if they had to travel to a clinic on a weekly basis um, and sit face-to-face in the same room um, with a counselor. And I think telemedicine is with being used- Particularly tra- yeah, just yes. want to because interrupt that,
1: that very few people are trained as well as Dr. Topkin in the cognitive behavioral therapy for Parkinson's. It's, it's, it's pretty specific. And so, you know, that, you know, it's important uh, and a very specific kind of, you know, rather than
0: supportive therapy. So. Just to add that. Yes, I- exactly. No, it's, it's very structured. It's very skills based. And of course, we, we are supportive and we listen and we help people process their thoughts and feelings in addition to working on coping skills to, to address them. So I don't want to make it sound like, um, you know, people are signing up to take a class. You know, it is a very um, interpersonal exchange. Um, but, but that being said, I think in order to be um, effective, In one's role as a counselor with individuals with Parkinson's, it's so important to be knowledgeable um, about Parkinson's and about the symptoms and the medications used to treat it. And, you know, the on off fluctuations that may be physical or cognitive um, or emotional or, or, or all three. And I think telemedicine also offers promise not just in terms of making specialized treatments more accessible, but it can also allow a pool of highly specialized providers um, to reach the masses who otherwise might not be able to, to receive services. So, you know, I think recent research has shown um, that telemedicine is not second best. Um, It's just as good, and then sometimes it might be better um, for the Parkinson's community um, to receive services via telemedicine because it will allow them to access specialists and specialized care um, that they otherwise um, would not be able to be connected with.
2: Well, look at this. It looks like our time is up. I want to thank you again for being a part of our community and for joining us today. And thanks to our panelists for sharing your time and expertise on this very important topic. For those of you who do experience mood changes, this serves as an important reminder that in spite of what Parkinson's deals us, there is plenty that we can do to positively impact our overall quality of life. We'll be sending a link to the webinar on demand to listen again or share as you'd like. We hope you found it helpful. Please mark your calendar for our next webinar, July 16th. In the meantime, stay home, stay safe, stay connected. This is Dr. Terence Yaffe signing off. thanks for listening.
1: Community members like you are bringing us closer than ever to a world without Parkinson's disease. Learn how you can support the Michael J. Fox Foundation in its mission at michaeljfox.org.
3: This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to
0: this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.